Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have some big Plasma 6 update. As the feature freeze approaches, they are fixing a lot, and I mean a lot of bugs, but they're still adding in some new stuff, which looks pretty cool. We have some big GNOME updates as well, as they're putting that 1 million euro grant thingy to good use and they're implementing a lot of cool stuff and we also have some updates to the cosmic desktop environment from system 76 for pop os we also have youtube making more anti-user moves in conjunction with the rest of google and google chrome we have linux outperforming windows 11 in a lot of benchmarks for recent cpus and a lot more stuff so as always all the links i use to make this podcast are in the show notes and all the links you can use to support the show are in the show notes as well. So let's begin with the Cosmic desktop. So Cosmic is the current implementation of GNOME in Pop! OS, but it's mainly the new desktop environment that System76 is working on for Pop! OS, which is also the reason why Pop! OS has been stuck on the exact same version with virtually no updates apart from a kernel or Mesa driver update here and there, but the desktop has stayed the exact same. Uh, that's because they're working on Cosmic, which is their own thing. It's not based on GNOME. They are redoing everything. It's a lot of work, but I think we should see it in 2024. So first, uh, what they've added, they decided to open the windows on your display in the incorrect way. Uh, they won't be centered. Well, the first one will be centered, but every single other window that you use will be offset compared to the center by 48 by 48 pixels, so it will leave the previous window's header visible. I'm joking, I, I know that centering windows is not the preferred way of doing things for a lot of people. For me personally, if a window doesn't open in the smack center of my screen, I am offended. So yeah, they're doing it in the incorrect way for me, but I think it's way more efficient uh, still, uh, the way that they decided to do it. Now, they've also added some new widgets to create uh, cosmic applications. Uh, there's now a color picker, an image picker, notably used to actually select a color or a wallpaper, and they improved their drop-down list to support separators and headers. So they're basically just catching up, uh, having all the widgets that you actually need to build settings and applications. Now, more interestingly, it looks like they're working on their own set of applications. We hadn't really seen anything about this before. We've seen a lot of work on the shell itself. So their dock, their settings, their top bar, the customization, the applets, uh, the compositor, stuff like that, but nothing really on the apps, which left me to wonder if Cosmic would just be a replacement for GNOME Shell, but that they would still use all the GNOME apps in the desktop. It looks like it won't be the case, at least for a text editor, because they showcased uh, what this thing will look like, and it looks pretty good. It looks like more advanced than something like G-Edit or, or GNOME text editor. It's more of a like light coding tool. It's not an IDE by any means, but it does support tabs. It does support a directory tree to navigate projects. It has syntax highlighting. It has Vim style editing and shortcuts. And it, it looks sort of on par with something like elementary OS code, which is a like middle point between IDE and text editor. It also looks like the Cosmic Desktop will support the MPRIS or MPRIS, uh, standard, which lets you control audio and video playback from your desktop itself. So with a little applet, you click that, you click play or 
pitfalls or, or next song or whatever. And they've also fixed their workspaces implementation and they improved the compositor quite a bit. Now, apparently Cosmic will also support custom themes. Uh, the compositor will work with the NVIDIA drivers. Uh, the desktop now supports entering text in Chinese and Japanese and other similar languages uh, through input method uh, uh, IME. What is the E in there? Input method extension? I don't know. Uh, and, and there are a few other things here and there. It also looks like they are thinking of implementing HDR in Cosmic. And they've apparently helped building the current implementation of HDR that we've seen land in KDE recently. Uh, which lets you actually play some HDR games directly in KDE using Kwin as the compositor. It looks like they've helped building this and they will reuse this sort of implementation in Cosmic as well. So it's all very good progress. It's nice to see that they're also working on their own suite of apps. I was really worried that Cosmic would be just a shell and as such would look completely out of place with every single app on your desktop. But I get the feeling that they're probably going to want to bring at least a suite of essentials. So maybe a file manager like the text editor we've seen, maybe a media player for audio or video, like the very basics, probably something along the lines of what elementary OS does, which is you've got your desktop, you've got your base set of applications that are well integrated and look the part. And then you can install anything else you want and they will obviously not look right if they're not dedicated apps for this desktop. But you do have the basics that are well integrated and give you a solid unified experience. I really do hope that's what Cosmic is striving for, even if it's not in the first release, even if at that point they don't have, I don't know, file manager yet. I think over time, I would be very surprised if they didn't bring their own set of apps to complement their shell because uh, if they're not satisfied with GNOME shell, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be satisfied with the rest of the GNOME apps. And I don't see them using like KD apps on top of Cosmic. I don't know. It would feel weird, I think. Now, in other desktop environment news, we have some news about Plasma 6 and about GNOME. So let's start with KDE. It looks like they've done all the planned features for Plasma 6. They're all complete, they're all implemented. And so the team is now in full polishing mode. I think the feature freeze for Plasma 6 is at the end of November, so in a few days. So it's good that they've actually managed to complete all the features that they set out to make. And since they released the alpha very recently, they have a lot of bugs coming in. And so they are focusing on fixing them as they arrive to make sure that the experience is as smooth and as nice as possible. Now, they still managed to slot in a few other changes here and there. Uh, they fixed two of the three uh, Wayland showstoppers. They had a list of stuff that if they couldn't fix, they wouldn't use the Wayland session by default. They fixed two out of three. The first one is uh, now asking the user to save their changes in various apps before restarting the computer. So previously in the Wayland session, if you hit restart, it would just shut down all your apps and lose your work and restart the computer. It, it does what you, what you want, but it does it in a very dumb way. Now it's going to ask you if you want to save your changes and then it's going to quit the apps and restart the computer. Much better. They've also enabled bounce keys on Wayland and the last showstopper is sticky keys. It's not done yet, but they're working on it. So it should be ready for the final release of Plasma 6, which means Wayland will definitely be the default session. 
they also added a few more minor improvements here and there. Uh, they're going to be more reactive in displaying changes in your user picture or when you create new files on the desktop. They're going to show them immediately on your desktop if you have that enabled. They're going to display more clearly which widgets are no longer compatible with Plasma 6. Because if you don't know, they changed the whole widget API between Plasma 5 and Plasma 6 because of the migration to Qt 6. And so some widgets need to be ported. The ones that might not be ported will be displayed as like that's going to be a user message telling you, hey, this thing is not ported yet to Plasma 6, so it's not working. So you don't feel like your desktop is all broken and stuff like that. They're also going to let you reboot without applying updates. If you're on a distro that uses offline updates where you need to restart to apply them, they're going to give you the option to restart without applying the updates if you want a very fast restart and you don't have any time to waste. And they're also going to let you uh, reorganize your web. They're not letting you, they're reorganizing the widgets. Uh, basically, previously you had the brightness, applets, and, and your controls. They were in the battery uh, widget. Now they're going to be moved in the same widget as night color because it makes more sense to control all the brightness levels and the temperature uh, color of your display uh, compared to just managing battery life, which is going to be in its own applet. So it doesn't add a new applet. It just moves stuff around, but it should be a bit more legible. And impressively, they fixed 221 bugs in a single week, which is absolutely insane. So obviously a lot of those might have been duplicates or a lot of those might have been really small wording issues or translation problems or whatever, but that's still a lot of stuff to be fixed. So everything seems to be moving along following the plan and it looks pretty great, especially since they still managed to push in some smaller UI and UX improvements on top of delivering what they planned. So yeah, they took their sweet time between 5.27 and Plasma 6, but it really looks like it's going to be worth the wait. It looks like the finished experience for KDE, like polished, stable, good UX, unified. It looks really nice. Now, as per GNOME, they also shared some progress on the various areas of the desktop and the general GNOME stack that they've been working on thanks to the recent 1 million euro grant they got. If you missed that, GNOME got a 1 million euro sort of donation or funding uh, from the Tech Sovereign Fund or Sovereign Tech Fund, which is like something handled by Germany, basically the German government. And with this money, they are focusing on improving a lot of stuff. Uh, so they've made progress on encrypting the user home directory. They're going to use systemd home d, which is sure to piss off a lot of people because it's done using a systemd thing, which means it's not going to work if you don't have systemd on your distro. But now home d is supported. Uh, they also worked on adding a new USB portal to handle USB devices safely through uh, a sandbox. Uh, they also worked on improving existing portals, meaning, for example, that you will now be able to drag and drop files to and from some sandboxed applications that didn't let you do that. Other areas of improvement include supporting CSS variables in GTK. They've done some profiling work on GNOME Shell and on Mutter that will result in improved performance. They already identified a few performance limitations and bugs that they're fixing. They're going to handle better notifications in the GNOME shell with per app grouping, which means you're not going to be flooded with notifications from one app. You'll be able to just collapse that and group that per app. They're going to improve the GNOME online accounts by supporting CardDAV and CardDive. And they're also getting rid of their, like, their own web view that they use to authenticate. 
uh, because they're going to open your default browser for that, which means it's going to support OAuth 2, which means you shouldn't have any real problems with connecting with any online account. You won't have to create an app password specifically for that. It's going to be a much better experience. They also worked on improving accessibility and they added some hardware-related improvements, like, for example, accelerating screencasts that you record using the GNOME screen recorder uh, and a few things like that. In terms of applications, two new apps joined GNOME Circle. There's Switcheroo, which is an image converter and, uh, and it also lets you scale images, resize images. There's Decibels, which is an audio player. And there are also improvements to Gyrance, which is the Plex client. Uh, it was updated to support more LibAdvita widget. And also Fractal, the Matrix client. It got a giant update to version 5 and it's a full rewrite of the application using LibAdvita and the Matrix Rust SDK, which means it now supports a bunch more features. Uh, it supports end-to-end -end encryption. It lets you send your current location as a message. You can now reply to specific message. You can react to them with emojis. You can edit your own messages. You can see who read messages. And you also can log in using multiple accounts. So it's really, really cool to see the wave of cool stuff that GNOME can now work on thanks to this big part of funding. I saw a few comments saying, oh, why is the Linux world always like congratulating themselves when they get like crumbs, like 1 million euro would be crumbs. Do you know how many startups would kill to get 1 million euros? I worked at a bunch of them and getting 1 million in funding when you're not like the most popular startup in the world, it is huge. For a Linux desktop, it's even bigger. It's not crumbs. It allows hiring a lot of people to just do a lot of cool work that you've been putting off for a while. Any open source project would be really happy to get 1 million in funding. And we're seeing the results. There are a lot of things being worked on by GNOME thanks to this money. And a lot of this stuff will benefit other desktops as well because improving portals, improving accessibility, improving GTK means improvements not just to GNOME, but to a lot of other desktops and applications. So it's really cool. And of course, we're going to congratulate GNOME on getting this funding because it is not crumbs. It is pretty huge. And now it's time I tell you about our sponsor. And as usual, it is Thunderbird. You know about it. You know what it does. It's an email client, contacts client, calendar, tasks, to-dos, notes, whatever. It does everything you need from a personal information manager. And if you've been like sort of burned in the past by its older interface, you probably know that they have revamped it entirely uh, with their recent release uh, called Supernova version 115. It's been a few months. It has become my client of choice. I used Geary, I used Gnome Calendar, I used Kmail, I used Evolution. None of those can just hold a candle to Thunderbird now. I didn't use it because it looked old, it felt weird, the interface was just not that great. Those things are fixed. You can now customize everything the way you want. You can apply custom CSS themes to integrate it better with GNOME, for example. You can reorder the buttons in the header bar. You can change the interface density, the layout. You've got so many cool UX and UI improvements and it still supports all the plugins that you might be used to. It's just a fantastic email client and it's replaced everything on all of my devices. So if you have tried Thunderbird in the past, it wasn't for you. Give it a shot again. I left a link to download it in the show notes as well. And thanks to Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Uh, it's always really cool to have support from big open source projects. 
Now let's talk about YouTube. You've probably seen or read uh, that YouTube has done a few weird things lately with their ad block blocker and and stuff like that. Uh, they, they basically implement a pop-up telling you, hey, you use ad block, well, GTFO and just you're not going to be able to watch any videos. Not everyone is seeing it, but it's being like deployed and everyone will be seeing it. But on top of that, some Firefox users have reported that YouTube added an artificial five second delay in Firefox, well, in YouTube, before loading any video, which made the experience absolutely atrocious. And this five second delay was not there, obviously, on Chrome and Chromium-based browsers. Which led a lot of people to think that, hey, Google is at it again, uh, they want people to move to Chrome, and they are just destroying Firefox again. Which, in my mind, really did not make sense, because first, uh, Google makes a bit of money from Firefox by just having Google as the default engine, and also Firefox is like under 10% market share. It's not even the one you want to fight. Uh, like, if Google wanted to do anything against any browser, it should be against Microsoft's Edge, uh, because that's the one eating their lunch, not Firefox. So it makes no sense to voluntarily hurt Firefox. It would be weird. And it looks like it's not done against Firefox users. It's done against ad blockers again. Uh, basically, the Firefox users that were affected seem to have an ad block enabled. And that's what YouTube was targeting. Uh, this translated in the page staying blank for like five seconds before the video actually loaded. And apparently just changing the user agent in Firefox to Chrome seemed to solve the issue. Mozilla themselves said that they don't think it's a Firefox specific issue. And if it feels weird that only Firefox users could reproduce this behavior, it looks like YouTube doesn't block what they call in-house trackers, which means trackers that exist in Chrome. Uh, these are not blocked. So basically they're detecting the ad block in Firefox better than they're detecting like those blockers in Chrome because they don't want to block their own stuff, which is why Firefox is affected and not Chrome. Well, it looks like this is what it is. But whatever the case might be, implementing this weird delay that is completely artificial and absolutely not a bug apparently is weird because if you have a pop-up saying, hey, you know what, YouTube, we, we make our living on ads. We will not tolerate you blocking our ads. I mean, I can understand it. I'm not super happy about it, but I can understand it. It's like, hey, you're stealing from us. So yeah, why would you do that? You, like, you're not helping us make ends meet. You're not helping paying for, for the hosting. So yeah, get the hell out of here. You're, you're a freeloader. I can understand where they're coming from. I don't necessarily agree with the position, but I can understand it. But making the experience worse without telling the user why just makes your website look broken or your browser look broken, but it doesn't educate the user on why you're doing it. It's super weird. If you want to implement stuff that makes people want to pay for YouTube premium or makes people want to watch your ads, you should probably lean on the, hey, if you block ads, you're actually hurting the creator you're watching right now. Uh, it not only hurts YouTube, but it also hurts the person you're watching. If you like their content, don't block their ads. That's where they should go to. This angle would make people realize what ad blocking does because a lot of people know, but a lot of people also need reminding that, yeah, if you make videos on YouTube, you make your money from ads. And if you block ads, then you're basically getting everything for free and you're not helping the creator. 
that's the angle they should go for, not just, hey, here's a five second delay that you don't know why is there and makes our website look broken. That's stupid, it's forcing the hand of the user, it, and it doesn't even tell the user why or what they should do to not get this delay. So yeah, another anti-user move from Google and YouTube, and let's hope they just go back on that, because come on, you have your pop-up, you are already telling people that they need to disable their ad block, just that's enough, stop there, okay, stop there, D don't make the experience worse for everyone for grabbing pennies, it's not useful. Now, in the same vein, uh, Google will apparently be moving forward with their plans to deprecate browser extensions that are using the Manifest v2 extension. Uh, if you don't know, Google is pushing the Manifest v3 API, which on paper provides more security because it limits what extensions can access and can do on your web browser, and they can't modify uh, your browsing experience as much. But the end result, uh, fortunately for Google, or maybe on purpose, is that ad blockers and tracker blockers are basically completely useless with the Manifest v3 API because this API limits the number of rules extension can apply to your URLs and to your browsing to 30,000. It is estimated that a good ad blocker or tracker blocker like uBlock Origin needs 300,000 rules, so 10 times more than what the API allows, which means that with Manifest v3, there is no way to have a competent ad blocker or tracker blocker, which sure might be more secure, but he's also a very nice boon for Google's ad business. And fortunately, most browsers other than Chrome will not restrict users from using Manifest v2 extensions. They will implement the good parts of the Manifest v3 extension API, uh, API extension, sorry, uh, but they will not uh, implement what is so restrictive. Only Chrome will, which Yay, too bad for you, Google, uh, because it's going to make Chrome a terrible browser for blocking ads and for privacy when everything else will be just instantly better in terms of experience. So, yeah, they, they I don't know why they're moving forward with these plans, because everyone told them it was stupid. They're definitely going to lose some market share when this comes into effect in June 2024 and you're not able to effectively block ads anymore. It's gonna suck for Chrome users, and Chrome users will definitely move to something else if they used an ad blocker. They're not gonna stick to Chrome, which is a good thing in the end. So I'm pretty happy about this because it's gonna reduce Google Chrome's market share a little bit. It's gonna increase, I don't know, the one for Brave, for other browsers that don't follow suit. Hopefully not Edge, uh, but maybe Firefox, maybe Brave, maybe Vivaldi, whatever. Better browsers than Chrome, so it's cool. If you want to learn more about this change on Manifest v3 and Google Chrome and why it's a big problem, I made a video specifically on that topic on my YouTube channel. I left a link in the show notes so you can go watch that if you want to learn more. Now we also have a nice little tidbit, a little juicy pat on the back, like self-congratulatory piece of news. Uh, Linux might not be the most popular operating system for PCs, but it definitely is not because it is lacking in performance. Because if you follow like recent hardware, AMD released their brand new Threadripper CPUs, which are basically their super high-end workstation CPUs. They've got the epic uh, architecture for servers, and they've got Threadrippers for really high-end workstations. They are insanely powerful CPUs. They're based on Zen 4 architecture, and apparently, 
they are much better on Linux than on Windows 11. They deliver a lot more bang for your buck on Linux. Foronix benchmarked a bunch of use cases with the Linux kernel 6.5 on Ubuntu 23.10 compared to the Windows 11 version that came, well, it was Windows 11 Pro that came pre-installed on the same computer. And uh, they tried that. And apparently Ubuntu was 20% faster than Windows 11 Pro. Whether it was using Blender for renders, encoding video, just running CPU-bound benchmarks, Linux just trounced Windows at every turn. And it's not even a matter of driver support, because you could argue that the pre-installed Windows 11 Pro version doesn't have like solid drivers yet uh, for, for the Threadripper, but Ubuntu 23.10 uses the Linux kernel 6.5, which means not only does it not have the latest drivers that might be included in 6.6, but it also doesn't have the new CPU scheduler, which should be a huge improvement for a just thread monster such as the Threadripper. So probably with 6.6, Linux even has a wider performance gap. So it's really a true apples to apples comparison. It's not even the latest optimized thing against the generic thing. It's two generic things and there's a 20% difference. It really shows that Linux outperforms Windows for serious workloads and serious real world use cases. It's just a bit of feel-good confirmation bias for us Linux users. We are, we are not the most used OS on the desktop out there, but we're definitely no slouch. And if you make the move to Linux, you definitely can expect much better performance than what you got on Windows. Speaking of which, there are some interesting moves from Microsoft recently, as they have contributed some improvements to the Mesa drivers, which if you don't know, are the open source drivers for AMD, for Intel, uh, and soon for Nvidia as well. They enabled, well, micro I say they, Microsoft, they enabled OpenGL support on top of Direct3D12 over Mesa, which is mainly to let uh, the Windows subsystem for Linux access graphics capabilities using DirectX 12. Uh, for devices that wouldn't have native OpenGL capabilities. So you've got something that doesn't support OpenGL natively, that would run Windows, and you would run WSL on top of it, and through WSL and the DirectX 12 API from Windows, you would be able to get OpenGL capabilities in WSL. It's a bit, bit weird mix of layers, but it's interesting. Now they've also added more work to the DirectX 12 driver into Mesa, mostly related to video playback and decoding. And what's interesting is that they're saying this is to set the stage for a new front-end to Windows Media Foundation transforms, which are basically the term they use to decode and encode media. So this is probably also meant to be used for WSL only, uh, so only when using Windows, but it's still interesting to see Microsoft contributing things to Mesa especially since the Windows Media Foundation has been a big sticking point for a while on various video games uh, running with Proton. It's been mostly fixed, but if this code has been contributed correctly to Mesa, maybe it could be used uh, to actually improve how well we support all that stuff in video games. And who knows, maybe at some point we will see DirectX 12 making its way directly onto Mesa if Microsoft decides they want to do away with translation layers, if they want to get the best performance possible for WSL, 
it would probably be best if the Linux subsystem that is running on top of Windows could access DirectX 12 directly, and if any Linux system could just have access to DirectX 12 natively. It would help with gaming, and it wouldn't be that stupid, because Microsoft is currently really more of a services company than just selling Windows. Like, selling Windows is not important to them. If they move to a subscription model, maybe not. But right now, Windows is not... It's a money maker. It's making a lot of money for them, especially through OEM deals. But they're making more money through services like Game Pass, like selling Office and stuff like that. And it is in their interest to actually make sure that these services run everywhere. So if they could provide their games on another platform easily, like for example on the Steam Deck and Steam, by just making sure they run well using DirectX, or if they could just provide some of their apps and services that need DirectX to run directly on any system, including Linux, maybe they would do that. So it could be an interesting thing uh, to follow. It probably won't happen, but who knows? Maybe I'm just dreaming. Now, still on the topic of drivers, uh, there are some improvements, again, to the open-source NVIDIA driver for Vulkan, called NVK. Uh, it is now fully conformant with Vulkan 1.0. This means that this driver passes the entire test suite for Vulkan, so it supports every single feature that Vulkan 1.0 needs. And it can now claim that it officially supports the Vulkan API. In terms of how it works, it means that just the driver should just work, like with any Vulkan 1.0 compatible app or game. Uh, if it doesn't need an, a newer version of Vulkan and that, it should just work, bar some app-specific bugs or issues that need to be fixed specifically. Everything should run. There's, of course, some more work to be done to support Vulkan 1.3, which, as far as I know, is the latest version of Vulkan. Uh, and they also need to add support for older GPUs in NVK, because right now I think it only supports RTX uh, GPUs, uh, nothing older than that. And the new compiler that they recently merged also needs some work to, to make shader compiling performance better. But yeah, there's now a fully functional Vulkan driver for NVIDIA GPUs. Now, passing the Vulkan test suite doesn't mean it does so in a very performant manner, maybe performance is still terrible, we don't know yet. But yeah, at least it is conformant, which is a very nice pace, because I think it started maybe a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, and in one year being able to have a fully open source implementation of Vulkan that takes advantage of NVIDIA GPUs, really nice, really nice work. I am personally pretty sure that 2024 will be the year where we have a fully usable NVIDIA open source stack uh, with the Nuvo drivers and support for the GSP firmware, so performance for Nuvo might finally be good, plus support for Vulkan natively with NVK. We also have an OpenGL driver that is open source that supports uh, NVIDIA, so we're not going to lack anything. Uh, we might not have the exact same good performance as with the proprietary drivers, but we will definitely in 2024 have a complete stack to run a fully open source system using NVIDIA cards. And that's really, really cool. It's going to be very interesting to follow uh, next year. And still on the topic of drivers, it looks like the Linux kernel team is now taking a stance on ARM64 support, and namely on CPU-specific optimizations. 
Uh, there was a set of patches that was published for Ampere 1 processors, which were contributed by Ampere Computing, which is the company making these processors. They are ARM CPUs, and they basically delivered a very optimized thing specifically for the CPU. So they, they patched a condition in the generic ARM64 drivers uh, to just optimize specifically for their CPU. And this seemed to result in a 1.3 to 1.4 times performance improvement in read operations. Uh, so basically improving how these CPUs can access uh, files and reading stuff in certain file systems. But these patches will not be upstreamed in the Linux kernel. Well, Deacon, who is an ARM kernel developer, stated that they prefer staying away from microarchitecture optimization. So optimizations made through a condition to only work on a specific CPU because you don't know if they're good for other CPUs. Uh, because these optimizations are not only hard to maintain and to test, but they also create bloat in the code. And other developers seem to agree with the statement and they even provided a patch to remove an already existing architecture-specific patch that existed in the driver, so they would not be hypocritical. And this is probably going to set a precedent to try and keep the ARM64 code simple and generic, without any CPU-specific optimizations. This might mean that either people contribute their code for the generic driver, and they prove things for everyone, or it might also mean we'll see plenty of specific builds of the kernel that include these patches with one kernel for each CPU microarchitecture, and this would really suck. I would hate to see us land, at least for ARM devices, in a situation similar to what Android has, uh, where each device needs its own kernel, its own subsets of, like, drivers that are plugged into the kernel in esoteric ways, using some GPL condoms to not have to provide the sources. Any distro should work on any hardware, no matter if it's ARM or Intel, and no matter which kernel used. Like, the generic kernel should work on any hardware. You should not need a specific builds to enable hardware support. Having builds that have specific optimizations? Sure, why not? But needing a specific build to actually run on specific hardware would absolutely suck. So I hope we're not moving into a, a world where every single device has to have its own specific kernel with a PPA or repo for various distros, because it would be a freaking nightmare and it would make Linux even less suitable uh, for the general public to use on these devices. Okay, and now let's conclude this episode with the gaming news. So first, it looks like Valve is adding some information on the Steam client to better display which games support which controllers. Uh, it's going to include Xbox and PlayStation controllers, including like DualShock 4 and DualSense, which is the PS5 controller. So individual pages for games will now show the exact controllers they support. And if you're wondering, like actually supporting, for example, a DualSense means having an in-game uh, reflection of the PlayStation button. So it's not going to say press X uh, when on a PlayStation controller it would be press square. It's not going to show the Xbox glyphs, it's going to show the PlayStation glyphs. And it's, it might also support like the haptic triggers and stuff like that. Uh, that's what it means. So individual pages for games will show the exact controllers they support. You will now get per controller type filters and it's going to be a much better experience. Because if I could use my PS5 controller in the game, 
I would, whenever I can, I do so on my SteamOS console, but a lot of games support it as a generic controller, but they will display Xbox glyphs, which means sometimes they say press X, I'm gonna press X or cross on my PlayStation controller, but that's not what they mean. What they mean is press square, or they're gonna say press Y, and I have to translate this mentally into pressing triangle, it sucks, I don't like using that, and so for these games, I stick to the Xbox controller, even though I sort of prefer the DualSense now. Now, we also got an update to VKD3D Proton, which is the translation layer that lets you translate DirectX, well, DirectX 12 instructions into Vulkan instructions that your Linux system can understand. It's what lets you play DirectX 12 games using Proton on Linux. Uh, and this new version brings DirectX ray tracing by default. Previously, you needed to enable it using uh, a launch argument, and this is now not needed anymore. You can still use the launch argument to force HDR, even if it wouldn't trigger in certain games because it's been specifically blocked because they know there are issues. You can still force it. You can completely disable it if you don't want it, but by default, it's going to be there. So if the game uses DirectX ray tracing, it's gonna work on Linux natively with this version, if your hardware supports ray tracing, obviously. Uh, they also have full support for DirectX Ultimate on uh, RDNA 2, so AMD, recent AMD graphics, and on Turing graphics, or recent AMD, uh, recent NVIDIA graphics, uh, and all newer architectures. And DirectX Ultimate, if you don't know, is basically a feature set of DirectX that is only enabled if the hardware supports it, uh, this includes ray tracing, variable rate shading, mesh shading, sampler feedback, and stuff like that. There were also a bunch of bug fixes and performance improvements. Basically, it brings VKD3D Proton up to snuff with the latest DirectX 12 uh, things. And it's nice to see Linux bridging the gap for gaming. Because, yes, we can run most Windows games on Linux. I think it's like 70% now that will run, no problems, no questions asked. And, but being able to play the game doesn't mean you get to play it in the best conditions. And we're still lacking HDR support, even though it's really coming. It's coming pretty fast. It's going to be in 2024, definitely. But now at least we can have ray tracing for people who want to make use of their expensive hardware that they bought specifically to have pretty lights. Uh, so that's cool that it's supported now. And finally, we also got the release of Wine 8.21, uh, this includes the recent Wayland patches that I talked about last week. So it supports high DPI with Wine, it supports Vulkan uh, as well. And it also brings initial support for ARM64EC, which is a new application binary interface that Windows 11 implements uh, to basically have ARM apps, to run apps on ARM platforms, because Microsoft is pushing hard uh, to have Windows 11 work on ARM. And so Wine got the first pieces needed to support these binaries. Virtually no one uses Windows 11 on ARM, but it might change in the future as their software matures, as emulation gets faster, as more apps are native uh, on Windows for ARM, and as the hardware evolves as well. So it's good to have support planned for that on Linux. There were also 29 bugs fixed. Uh, for games such as uh, Port Royale 2, Age of Empires 2 Definitive Edition, or Death Stranding, but also fixes for Wayland, for Microsoft Office 2021, and more. And this version of Wine should be the last one before Wine 9.0 is released. It's hard to say Wine 9. And big version numbers don't really mean all that much nowadays uh, for, for Wine. 
It, basically, when Wine 9 releases, it's going to be a compilation of everything that happened uh, in the Wine 8 cycle, plus a few other things that were never delivered previously, but not that much. Uh, so it's basically just a stable release of everything of the mid-cycle of Wine 8, which was unstable, like the 8.21, 8.20, there are unstable versions. So Wine 9 will be the next stable version, and it's gonna be used for Proton. Proton will be rebased on Wine 9, so we should get a lot of good performance improvements and bug fixes in Proton as well. And that's pretty much why it's still exciting to follow Wine, because you know what's gonna land in Proton relatively soon, and it's really cool. So, uh, this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, you have all the links in the show notes. And if you want to support the show, you also have all the links that you might want in the show notes as well. And if you want to check out our sponsor, Thunderbird, I also left a link to them right there. So, thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!